1: Welcome to the Think Future podcast, broadcasting from deep in the heart of Silicon Valley, California. We focus on innovation, startups, and in the future, not necessarily those, and not necessarily in that order. Here's your host. How are you? How are you on the West Coast?
0: <laughs> Great. It's still dark out, so that's normal. <laughs> How many Thank you
1: do, um, do you do on a typical day, Chris?
0: I'm sorry? I say,
1: how many of these podcasts do you do on a typical day?
0: Well, today's a little special. I'm doing three today, but usually <laughs> it's uh, it's a dull roar of one.
1: <laughs> okay. OK, cool.
0: Yeah, my apologies for last week. Uh, something just came up and it just uh, I was not able to make it happen, so apologies.
1: I, I totally get it. No worries. Um, you are in good company. Uh, you know, with everything going on uh, personal, personal surprises seems to be something of a norm
0: exactly wow your your, your room was very similar to it's color scheme to mine i'm like wow
1: <laughs> i suppose we could i suppose we could uh i could change it to a dark shirt and then we could have your viewers thinking wait a minute did they plan this
0: <laughs> who are these people <laughs> i love it <laughs> Okay. All right. Well, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your organization and, um, what you're passionate about we'll go from there.
1: Terrific. Well, um, Peter Mulford, I'm the head of our innovation and digital transformation practice at BTS. And, uh, what I'm most passionate about, what a, what a lovely question. Uh, I'm, I've been very curious for a long time about creativity, really what it is, uh, how it works and how people can use it uh, once you have a, an understanding of what it is and how it works to make their lives better. And uh, specifically to BTS, how you can use it to discover and solve problems uh, in new ways. And I would say more recently, maybe in the last two years, um, this has included also using creativity to help you become comfortable with uncertainty, right? To see. Uh, uncertainty not as something to be avoided, but actually something that can be the source of uh, inspiration and, uh, practically speaking, growth and profitability for a business.
0: Well, that's interesting because I, I feel the same way. I, I think uncertainty is is life, basically. I mean, and it's like ah. if you fear uncertainty, you're going to feel you're going to fear fear life because uncertainty. Yeah, it's like. One of the things that I, I love is that when I'm doing project after project and then people are always talking about this mythical thing called the steady state, right? Mm-hmm. That you, you go through the project and at the end, there's a steady state. And I'm like, right. what steady state? It doesn't thing as a steady state anymore. In fact, it, was there ever a steady state, right?
1: Well, you know, what? so it, it's interesting you say that, Chris, because um, I'm guessing that you and I are, are probably similar in age. And um, if you look at, the things that we were taught and that most leaders our age were taught, uh, particularly in the business domain, right? you you largely had a set of management principles and tools that were designed to build an advantage and scale an advantage over time. That was the whole thing, right? So uh, it's no surprise that there's a bias towards uncertainty in most companies because largely all the tools that we were taught in business school were about how you strip uncertainty out of any kind of situation to improve the probability of your forecasts being accurate which then drove your budget cycles which then drove your hiring and your capex and everything else and now we find ourselves in a world where your periods of competitive advantage are simply getting so short that a lot of these tools fall apart but the bias is still there. Exactly. The bias is still there. This this intuition about let's get to the steady state and scale is bumping up against the reality, which is it's not there anymore. And I think a lot of firms are finding the tools they have for dealing the environment um, don't work anymore as a result.
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. And I think there's this, I think the other thing that we, we're taught and I don't know if it's the same for you is the importance of planning right? It's so important to plan, 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 plan. But the reality is, is that, you know, every plan is, is a disaster because, you know, within moments it's, it's, it's gone, right? And we we haven't really, we, and uh, what we really need to do is plan for resilience, right? To bounce back from from these things that are gonna happen. Cause we know that they're gonna happen. We just don't know when, and we don't know how severe they are, but if we can build some kind of resilience against them, then we'll keep going. So we can't plan too far. Otherwise, you know, our plans are worth nothing.
1: You know, it's, um, you know, that's an interesting way, of, uh, that's an interesting way of putting it. I have found, and I'm curious to see if this is consistent with, with what you've discovered as well as you've done research for your books, that there is a a shift taking place from planning and waiting as the norm to you know this idea of of testing and learning. You know, so yeah. a shift from planning and waiting to testing and learning learning, which is a hard one, especially for those of us who have been told really from you know from elementary school on up, you know, plan thoughtfully. Have you planned everything out? Um,
0: yeah.
1: and that's 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 a hard shift to make. Is that uh, have you seen Anything similar in, in your work? Oh, in your... absolutely.
0: Absolutely. And in fact, if you think about it, that's exactly where agile software development, design thinking, all those types of things that we're seeing sort of crop up in our world are... are from that especially especially agile software development I mean agile software development is like well I got a general idea of what I want this thing to do so let me start working on it and then as we keep you know continuously work on it and iterate 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 you know then what comes out at the end might be completely different but you you definitely have a very light plan before you go into that and you use a lot of what's happening in the world to to inform where you're gonna go and pivot and et cetera. So, I mean, and it, it's not just in the software development world. I think that that sort of thinking has really sort of infected other areas as well. And people are looking at things in a more agile way.
1: Yeah, yeah. And it, well, it, you know, that, that last point about it, uh, it creeping outside of the software world to almost, well, you could say, basically I found it creeps out of the software world into any domain where you have more unknowns than knowns in any kind of project, you know, which is to say, right. we find that I often get asked the question, "Okay, okay Peter and BTS, we we get it, you know, we understand that agile is a thing, uh, we understand that smart experimentation is a thing, uh, but how do I decide from moment to moment whether I should be using smart experimentation or, you know, best practice sharing?" Uh, mm-hmm to go forward with a particular project. And what we found is the, the answer is actually relatively simple. It's if there are say 10 things you know you need to do in order to execute a particular project and seven of them are known to you and three are unknowns. Well, you don't really need Agile in that case. In that case, you can just leverage the knowledge you have, pull out your waterfall chart, your Gantt charts and execute. It's in those yeah. circumstances where the ratio is flipped, that you have to think differently, you know, if there are 10 things I need to do, and only one of them is known to me, and nine of them have a high degree of uncertainty, that's your signal that you need to to manage it differently, and and off you go.
0: Yeah, and if you think about it, I mean, agile is so broadly used as a term, if you go and look at the real core tenets of agile project management, agile software development, none of that stuff is being used like and and when you talk about scrum and it's sort like, Oh, we're having a daily standup, which you're sitting down for and having and doing for an hour. It's like, <laughs>
1: Yeah. 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 Well, it's, yeah, it's, I, I think what you're getting at is something that certainly uh, we feel a lot in the consulting world, which I think could be va- variously described as a buzzword bingo, right? There, yeah. there are a lot of terms, that we deal with that well-intended consultants uh, like ourselves put out into the world, which are confusing, like innovation and mm-hmm. digital, and and in this case, agile. So I would say, uh, and I, I imagine you would agree with this, that the first step to getting any of this right is to create clarity around what you mean. So I would, you know, from my experience, from an innovation perspective, it's if you're, you're going to do innovation, it means as a leadership team defining well, what do we mean by this? And specifically, where do we wanna see innovation and to what end? And similarly for digital and digital transformation, again, it starts with, okay, Well, what are the business problems we're trying to solve? You know, how do they map to the P and L for which we think the application of digital technology of any sort is a solution? So it, it always right. starts with business outcomes and then ladders back to you know, this term, whether it's agile or innovation or digital transformation that is very clearly defined as solving a certain type of problem in a certain way using design thinking or using fast experimentation or using, you know, transition to the cloud or machine learning, etc. So start by creating clarity, yeah.
0: Yeah, innovation as a term means so many different things to so many different people. You know, client A, client B, client C, it's it's all completely different. I mean, you have say a financial services client, you know, a traditional bank, innovation is, "Oh, we have an iPad app." You know, and then you have a fintech company, something completely different. You have a healthcare company, it's something completely different. And you have to constantly recalibrate, you know, once you enter into a new situation, what do these people, what does this group feel is innovative? Like where does it where do the where do the edges lie? And then you have to sort of play in that space?
1: Well, you know, having, and, you know, we're we're really lucky we get to work with a number of companies, for example, in the financial services space, uh, with digital natives, with industrial manufacturers. And we found, I think, Chris, to your point, that the firms who get it right actually have a very clear definition about what they mean when they say innovation in, in, in the first place. And I would say that uh, when you get past the complications of language, the best ones have a definition that, that more or less sounds something like a discipline or an approach to solving problems in new ways. Mm-hmm. Right. And then you can go from there into horizon one, two, or three, uh, innovation, which of course I'm sure your, your listeners know is incremental adjacent or, you know, blue sky innovation, but, the great ones always start by saying, look, this is fundamentally about solving problems. And if you have a problem that's solved by an app, that that is innovation. Or if you have a problem that's solved by uh, machine learning or artificial intelligence, that's innovation. And the beautiful thing is once there's clarity around what we mean, the allocation of resources. The allocation of you know budgets, time, and people, um, the willingness you know this idea of what it means to fail fast becomes very very clear, and employees and managers can see how that matters for the company strategy. If you don't have that clarity, it's just kind of chaotic, right? And more often than not, you also have a lot of anxiety in firms where you know the CEO might say, "Okay, everybody, we need to innovate." And then if there's no clarity about what that means or how that ladders up to your your P&L, then people are just guessing. And guesswork on top of guesswork creates a lot of uh, risk aversion. And then suddenly when you do your business practice survey, you hear things like, well, management doesn't tolerate innovation or we're too risk averse. um, When really the problem is it just wasn't clear what innovation meant or why it matters. That's where the risk aversion can come from.
0: Right, and I think that that, that definition of problem solving is exactly right, it's exactly right. And I've heard that especially innovation professionals uh, like people from Spigot and other people who, who sort of like run innovation management software and innovation groups, et cetera, it's, it's, it's that simple really. It's like, what's your outcome? And then what kind of innovative ways can we use to get to that outcome? But a lot of groups, they don't treat it like that. It's almost like it's innovation theater, right? It's like, hey, you know, we're going to create an, we're going to hire a, C, a chief innovation officer and they're going to hire a huge team and they're going to build all these things and they're going to have a lab and they're going to have cool stuff. And then nothing ever comes out of it product-wise. I mean, have you seen that? Uh,
1: I have. And in fact, I have to say, Chris, I'm looking forward to um, uh, your upcoming book. I don't know if it's out yet. Uh, the title is <laughs> How Not to Innovate and That. I- I think, uh, I think I remember somewhere in your description of the book, uh, you say something about innovation theater. I think what's, what, what you're striking at, and I'm, I'm not sure, you know, most of what I've talked about on, this, on, on your podcast so far has been in- empirical. In other words, if you were to push hard at any of my assertions, I'd have some evidence. This next thing, let me just plant a flag where your listeners can see it. This is not empirical, this is just Peter's best guess. But my best guess on the origins of innovation theater of any kind finds uh, its source all the way back at this bias against uncertainty that we talked about before, Mm. which is to say that, you know, if I'm an executive and I've worked pretty hard throughout my career to become one, chances are pretty good that I did this by... uh, applying the the tools I learned in business schools in the the 90s, right, which is about, you know, being very good at planning, being a good strategic thinker in the Porter's Five Forces sense of the word, Uh, maybe having an ROI mindset, you know, constantly making decisions that would get me a return on capital uh, greater than my cost of capital. And now I find myself in this world where, okay, welcome to the 2000s, 2010, I have this new a batch of young executives working for me that have been trained in this thing called design thinking. Uh, everywhere I look, I see articles about innovation, being innovative, the innovator's DNA, etc. So what am I to do? Well, I understand that there's something important going on that doesn't exactly map onto the way I run the business, the way I've always run the business. So I put it over here to the right.
0: Yeah, I just that was a Larry thing.
1: To the right, there it is, and there's an innovation team, and you know, Skunk Works, or a chief innovation officer, and my design thinking, you know, my consultants on roller skates, wishing through the room with with brightly colored streamers flailing behind them, and and the problem is segways,
0: right? They're riding around with segways, (laughs)
1: segways, yeah, exactly, Uh, and you can see what the problem is with this. It's you're holding it somehow apart from the core strategy, when it should simply be part of your where to play and how to compete choices. That's it. And that, that's the fundamental difference. And I, I think leaders can be forgiven for not naturally mapping it to their business, because for the most part, that's that's not how things were done. Um, but that's mm-hmm. where you need to go to. And until you do that, it does have a, a theatrical element to it.
0: Yeah, you know, you're 100% right. Because I think I think if we look at what people are being rewarded on, right? What, what and and people will always go to what's their reward, what they're rewarded on. So they're not rewarded to spend a lot of money trying to come up with something new that may fail miserably, right? They're rewarded on you know the bottom line and 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 meeting the meeting quotas, etc. It, you know, it's almost like our whole reward system is not designed to drive innovation.
1: Yeah, it's it's a really good point. So you, I'm hearing you say that the incentives are not there, and that's that's certainly true. If your incentive, one way or the other, is to get an ROI on a project, yeah. for example, um, there's a problem. You know, there's a problem that emerges immediately, and and it's not intuitive, but if you stick with the math for a little bit, you can see it. I mean, the two problems with ROI is one. Um, their point uh, the whole ROI math is it's point estimates in time, right? Yep. And we all know that innovation is probabilistic, meaning there's a range of possible outcomes. And uh, if you could know with any degree of certainty what that, that range is, uh, well, it wouldn't be innovation anymore. You just you just execute. Um, yep. And that means that when if you hold people accountable for ROI, when they're innovating, they're naturally not going to be creative. Because if mm-hmm. you say to me, Chris, okay, I want you to innovate, I'm going to be excited. But then you say to me, oh, we're going to hold you accountable for ROI. <gasps> if I know anything about how ROI is calculated, I'm going to come up with the least creative, which is to say the most certain project I can come yeah. up with, and the yeah. one that's most likely to keep my CFO happy, and off I go. And it, it won't be particularly creative or disruptive. And the second problem with ROI, and this is, this is one that I think even people in the finance community miss. ROI assumes that there's no penalty for not attempting what you're attempting. Mm. It basically says it's either zero or whatever your ROI is gonna be. It right. doesn't actually-
0: A billion dollars. That's what everyone asks for, right? They all want their own little unicorn. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. But But imagine to get an accurate ROI analysis, you also have to ask yourself, well, what's the potential downside if we don't attempt this at all? In terms of loss of competitive advantage, in terms of loss of customers, etc. So, you know, ROI doesn't doesn't permit this, and uh, you know, as a consequence, it is not a, a useful tool to use when you're innovating. And yet, we you still see it. You know, at the end of you know, we had a conversation last week where we were talking about you know, an innovation initiative that we're about to engage in which will be about a year long at the very end somebody said oh, okay so at the end of 12 months how are we going to measure the roi on this and uh, you know, my quick answer is we won't certainly not if you want this to be successful and cause the appropriate mindset shift that you're looking for
0: did that kill the project when somebody said that, or did no, it? No, 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 it
1: didn't. It didn't. It, it, <laughs> it, led, it led to it led to a really interesting conversation. And I, I Chris, I suspect that that you and your listeners uh, would all agree with the, the, the following statement. The thing that's, that's most interesting about innovation is there's much of it that's counterintuitive. And there's a certain kind of magic that happens when uh, your clients or your partners, or, you know, whoever they happen to be, bump up against to that that moment of counter intuition, and then the light bulbs go off. It's, oh, yeah. uh, it's the coolest. It's the coolest thing. I mean, I yeah, think you it's, can it's see
0: it cool happening. About, it's like a physical, almost a physical state change. It's it's, it's really amazing. cool.
1: It's amazing. I mean, th- that I think is the uh, that's what makes consulting a lot of fun, generally. And in the space of innovation and, and digital transformation, you know, there's, there's a lot more topspin uh, that, that comes from that kind of joy because there's just so much about this work that is either counterintuitive or that really runs in an opposite direction to what most people have learned great looks like when you're, you're, you're in business.
0: Oh, exactly right. I mean, one of the things I do is uh, I work with companies to expand their patent portfolio. So you you have to force yourself to come up with ideas that w- could not exist today. So like, let's go to, f- you know, five years out plus. And I remember in one meeting, I desc- I was describing that and they kept s- sticking with product ideas. And I'm like, no, 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 you know, further, 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 things that we can't do today. And he goes, oh, we're entering the land of make-believe. And I said, yes.
1: <laughs> so that, that's interesting. So you're in the business of helping uh, or one of the things you're doing is helping companies expand their patent portfolio tell me tell tell us or if, if have you talked about this already on other podcasts we can No
0: not, not really but uh yeah so basically there's there's a set of companies and I think some of these uh are in fintech as well are not not fintech but financial services where you know they've got a porf- they've got a small portfolio of patents or even zero portfolio patents. And they want to be able to have freedom to operate in different areas. And some fintech companies, obviously fintechs, they understand that they need to have IP protection for whatever they're doing. Whereas some of the older financial services companies are like, you know, we've been doing this forever. We've had a few patents, but we're okay. But, you know, you know, so we work with them to Sort of ideate in that space like so maybe if there's an anchor patent and then we sort of expand upon that sort of build some more ip around it or start from scratch i mean we, we work with startups who have an idea and they don't really they don't really know what to do with it and yeah. then that sort of build a wall of protection around it so as part of that you've got to do ideation in that space sort of beyond where we are today and it's really difficult to get smes to go beyond that because it's almost like saying uh, you know, forget everything or go beyond, like, imagine something that you cannot do now. You know, it's like saying, don't think about the white elephant, right? <laughs> it's, it's almost <laughs> impossible for some people. But then when when the light bulb clicks, it's like, oh yeah, you don't want something that we can do. You want something that we can't do. And then once you once you open up the possibilities of can't do, it, it it's amazing what you can get out of them. That's
1: interesting. How would you say, uh, if at all, uh, innovating in the domain of Patents is different uh, from innovating in, say, the domain uh, around products and services or oh, supply it's, chain.
0: It's it's totally different because it really is, you know imagination it's 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 it frees you from all of the boundaries because basically what happens is when people walk into our ideation sessions it's it's like they've been sort of compressed by the problems of the day oh how am i going to figure this out how am i going to get ROI on this how am i going to get this product out the door you know all these different problems that i'm dealing with because of the systems that they're mired in today and mm-hmm. we just basically deep like take that anchor away and say you know what free your mind to think about you know your ideal x right? Like what would have to happen for this ideal X to occur? And then once you've imagined your ideal Xs, then you kind of like unpack the black boxes and go, okay, how would we build that? How would we build that? How would we build that? And usually there's a huge gap between today and the thing that you'd want to build. So the patentability or the IP is in that space in between. So you can imagine this. And the concept is basically just A lot of companies, they do IP at the end of the cycle. They go, okay, we have this product, we're about to release it to the world and we wanna make sure it's protected, right? But this is the opposite. This is, let's imagine a product that does not exist and we're not gonna build, but we'll we'll file, we'll build a patent around it so that if we do decide to build it at some point in the future, then at least we have the protections. And if we decide not to, we can license it.
1: Yeah, That's really interesting. So if I'm, if I'm hearing you, if I'm hearing you right, it sounds like what you're doing is you're building IP protection around what's fundamentally a prototype.
0: Right, a prototype that does not exist. Yeah, that's so interesting. It, it's, it's a, it's virtual product development, basically. It's a concept that uh, I pioneered uh, back at Yahoo in 2005 with a few other people. Um, we, we had a VP of IP come in and say, you know what, our patent our patent, uh, our patent portfolio is way behind everybody else's. Look at Google, look at uh, IBM, etc. So, but we need to build that out, and it's like, okay, well, how do we do that without actually building products? So, we created this virtual, uh, you know, virtual product development process where we create products virtually that do not exist, and then write IP around the product.
1: So let me let me ask you a question uh, about this uh, for your for your viewers who I'm, I'm guessing might be thinking this. One of the things you know we've we've observed that I think anyone who does innovation has felt is there's usually two sources of resistance to innovation of any kind. There's uncertainty related to the outcome. You know, will this work yeah. or not? Uh, and then there's uncertainty related to the timing. Mm-hmm. That so you know there's this base level of uncertainty is you know will this idea, take off or not relative to the cost associated with it. And then that uncertainty it gets amplified by the time scale over which you're doing this. Right. So yep. you know if I were to go to, to my boss and say, uh, okay, uh, Jessica, I have this great idea. And I think, you know, I need a hundred thousand dollars or ten million dollars from you. And I think it'll it might get you a return of X by next quarter. So immediately she's going to be thinking, well, here's the uncertainty of Will it be minus a million dollars in profit or plus a million dollars? And then when I say, oh, and by the way, we should reach steady state five years from now, is just, oh, really? So what, um, So those are the kind of the two variables. My question for you is, do you find that when you're dealing with something like patents, by their very nature, does some of the resistance go down, you know, perhaps on the timing knob? Because patents by their nature are they, they tend to have much longer time scales, or is the you think no Pete, no resistance, no change at all? People are still as antsy about it as with anything you know, else.
0: There is a, it's a it's a different kind of pushback because it's more along the lines of well, what am I gonna have at the end of this? Right? What's what's mm-hmm. coming out of this? And how can you va- I mean, again? We're we're back to value. It's always ROI, value, et cetera. So if I come up with say hundred ideas or fifty ideas during a, a two hour session. And we go and we, we run it past the attorneys and they go, well, 10 of these are patentable. So you have to decide of these 10, you know, which one of these is actually going to hit the jackpot, which one is the billion dollar idea and which one is a dud. There's no way to know. So what they do is we, we, we just patent all of them because it's about 15 to 20 K to do, or like a regular patent, about Mm -hmm. 1500 to do a provisional, we just patent everything right so with $150,000 you've got 10 ideas that are protected and you don't you don't know which one of them is going to be a billion dollar idea or not so you just sort of capture it so there's less you know, risk in, in in doing that but at the same time you have to convince people at the end of it is that this is something that's got some value. We just don't know what the value is yet. And that's even more, more almost more uncertain in some ways because they'll go, well, I spent $10 million on this and I'm making you know, $5 million on this. So I know exactly what my ROI is on this thing. But a patent, it's like, I've spent $15,000. Is it for nothing or is it a billion dollar patent? We don't know.
1: Mm. You know, I, I the thing you said right in the middle of that, uh, that really stuck with me is uh, you said, well, there are lots of different o- obstacles to innovation, or I, I think you said we have to rewind the tape, something to the effect of you know the, the types of obstacles change when you're doing patent related innovation to anything else. And um, well, the reason that stuck with me is I found that, I mean, isn't it funny that one of the defining characteristics of innovation is if you wanna get it right, you have to spend a disproportionate amount of your time focusing on the obstacles that get in the way, right. think, relative to any other endeavor. endeavor. Yeah. I mean, you yeah. always need to do a form of stakeholder mapping and identifying obstacles for, I think, any business endeavor, but only with innovation, does that become even more important than figuring out what the upside is yeah. you know, or what the potential is,
0: Right. Is, have you noticed this cycle? There's like, there's always this cycle. And it, it I've, I've done this for, I don't know, 15, 20 years now. And there's always this cycle of innovation within organizations because organization gets super hot on it. You know, they staff up, they hire, they, they 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 do all these great things or they talk about doing all these great things. And then there's a period of time, maybe two or three years when things are chugging along and it seems like there's action, but then there's a certain point in time where again, you know, maybe the market, turns around or there's some negative press or whatever. And then all of a sudden it's like gone. Right. And then a couple of years later, it starts up again. So there's this it's it's cyclical. And if you hit the company at the right moment, you know, on the upswing, you know, things are great and they might actually go, you know, even further or or, or but it all it all comes down to leadership. If you have, you know, someone in leadership who can champion this, and move it through then it's just going to keep on going. And then once you lose that champion, then you know it, at some point in the next couple of years or so, something serious is going to happen to this group. And I've seen it happen so many times. It's almost getting, it's almost tiring. It's almost like groundhog day, right? It's like, Oh, here we go again. (laughs) We lost the CINO. Oh, okay. Well, what do you think this guy, let's, let's run, let's uh, do some bets on how long this is going to last before, you know, the group disbands or whatever. But, uh, but not, not every company, not every company has that problem. But I think the vast majority of things of companies that are not like non-tech probably fit into that space because it's like the tech companies get it. They know that they need to continuously innovate in order to keep moving forward. You know, otherwise, you know, they'll die, but almost every other industry is like, you know, how can we resist this? How far can we resist this? (laughs) And you feel like it's obstacle after obstacle, after obstacle, you spend all of your time, you know, butting up against it. How are you, how are you, how do you get around it? So it's like, I mean, how, what have you found in, in places like is there is there easier ways to get around it or or, or what are your thoughts?
1: So let, let me make sure I understand the question. It, it sounds like you're saying um, do have we found easy ways to get around the you know a bias which is which says this will go away eventually. This is just an innovation cycle, and if I just hunker down and wait a little bit longer. Things will go back to normal. I don't know. Have you or, have you
0: been have you seen you've seen the cycle? Obviously, I'm assuming you're nodding, so that's great. And then, um, like, have you seen a a situation where what do you need to do to stop the cycle from dipping? Like, how do you you know unless you see like generate successful stuff and keep it going, then it'll dip again. So, have you ever seen the ability to get out of the dip?
1: Yeah, that, that's an interesting question. Um, I've certainly seen firms get out of the dip and, and mm-hmm. usually the reason for them doing that is, is, is no surprise, some sense of urgency, right? And I think right. that's what you are talking about, the cyclical nature of this. It's uh, for whatever reason, depending on the firm you're working with, there's a, a natural entropy or you know a cultural inertia that says, if it isn't broke, don't fix it, right? And, yeah. and you know you're in that kind of situation if you have a certain layer of the organization that's quite happy, with the, their profits and their bonuses and how things are going, and this is maybe some bubbling agitation at the bottom, uh, yeah. or at different parts of the company where they say we need to innovate if for no other reason than because it's exciting and because we want to try new things. And then ultimately, where the the, the suppressed entrepreneurial energy breaks through to the top is some exogenous shock. Shock. A competitor mm-hmm. comes in. There's a market shift, and now all of a sudden everybody's aligned. So I think the, you know, never waste a good crisis, the, you're guaranteed to have that problem solved for you if your competitors force you to do it. Right. Um, I think the other, maybe the more interesting question you're asking is, uh, have have I seen, or have we seen examples where that happens before there's a crisis? Mm-hmm. And the answer is is yes. Mm-hmm. And it usually starts with leaders who are effective at thinking from the future back, right? no, no more or less complicated than that. You know they arrive at a company that's doing very well or they arrive at a situation that's great, and they have their team extend their imagination, you know three to five years into the future and ask, what does this world look like? And is there anything going on here that we should start planning for today? Uh, and that's where, you get companies to start thinking about innovating and, and, and being future forward long before they need to. So by yeah. the time you actually get there, the, the, you know innovation, it isn't something we need to start to do. It's what we've been doing for ages and it becomes a natural part of their DNA.
0: Yeah, well, that's why I think, you know we, we should have a, like a chief futurist officer or something like that. Like somebody in leadership who does look out Ten years or so, and go. Okay, here's where we're going to be in ten years. Let's work backwards from the from that ten year mark to today, and then figure out where we're going to go, and 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 build that ourselves, right? Because a lot of, a lot of these companies go, well, I can't possibly think that far out, and it's like, well, you know, you have a hand in getting to that point, right? It's not just you know, you're not just being buffeted by the world. You have a hand in getting there, and if you don't know, you know, at least how you're going to get there, at least have a plan to get there then how are you gonna know what to do next? I mean, it, it's, it's maybe it's like a bias towards short-term thinking. There's so much short-term thinking that it's almost impossible to, to get that long view.
1: Yeah, I, it's a good point. I would say that smart people, in fact, in particular, smart people uh, often have a difficult time imagining the future uh, and it's not because of a lack of smarts, it's it's typically because they have a difficult time seeing beyond their current frame of reference, right, right. or because they have a difficult time getting their heads around fiction, you know, even mm-hmm. if it, even it's plausible fictions, it's just, it, 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 there's a, there's a counter. Science it.
0: fiction is plausible. No,
1: <laughs> yeah, I see that with the Starship Enterprise over your, uh, your left shoulder there. Uh, but it, it's an important point. You know, one of my favorite stories. Whenever uh, clients push back on this, is they say, "Well, tell me, you know, that sounds great in the abstract. What does it look like in the real world?" And there's um, there's a company we work with, multinational uh, that does a lot of business in mainland China, and their head of, of that part of the world does something really interesting. Uh, every month, they uh, well, every week actually. There's a senior leadership team where all the regional heads get together and they simply talk about what's going on that week right so it's very action oriented very immediate term focus but one week a month when they get together they only talk about 3 years out mm-hmm. and what's fascinating if you go to the, the, the if you go to the weekly stand up meeting there's no discussion of the future is is permitted it's there's no fantastical conversations it's save it for the 3 year meeting but then when you get to the 3 year meeting it doesn't matter. I mean, the, the you know, the, your, your the local channel could be on fire. It's this is a session where we only talk about the future. Yeah. And talking with this leader about how he created this rhythm, it was very disruptive at first. But gradually what happened is he created a cadre of leaders who just have a natural habit for keeping their feet in two places at once. Scaling this model on one foot while always looking three to f- five years out on the other and uh, you know after a year and a half of this it has fundamentally changed their results over there
0: no I love it that's that's a fantastic idea so it kind of leads back to a culture right I mean I think a lot of this is because of, of culture change that's how you get innovation to move forward within an organization has that been able to change that that concept has that been changed has it changed culture throughout or is that just a leadership thing
1: uh, it's you, you can imagine I mean we haven't haven't done a we haven't done a cultural audit There, but we have done a business practice survey, and no surprise, literally right down to the the front line, what we're seeing is people saying things, you know, for example, on a scale, you know, to what extent does management support innovation? Uh, It has gone up. uh, To what extent is, you know, creativity encouraged in the business that has gone up? You know, I wouldn't, that's not the only thing that they're doing, but you can imagine right just you know you can extend your imagination into a world where if you have the the top x number of people acting this way it's going to trickle down through sort of the day-to-day conversations and uh, yeah. it, it's it's going to at least impact how people view the world and the types of conversations they have subsequently
0: now that's a fantastic if you think about it i mean that could be triggering a whole series of events that takes it that, that expands the, and, and you finding this, this company being more innovative than, than usual?
1: Uh, well, you know, that's, that's an interesting question because the, the, <laughs> the, I mean, this is, this is one of those firms, you know, honestly, where I, I sometimes feel like I learn more from them than mm-hmm. they, uh, they get from us. And I say that all the time, you know, it, it's just funny when, the, when we were first approached to do innovation work with them, uh, honestly, I, I'm pretty sure I said this in the first sales meeting. I said, really? <laughs> You've <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, it's, I I'm not sure we have anything to teach you that you don't already know. And actually, I have to say, um, I have to say to her credit, the client fired back. She's like, yeah, Pete, I, I, you know, that's sweet of you to say, fine. But if you don't think there's always an opportunity to get better at this stuff, then just keep your fingers crossed and hope the competition feels the same way like, ah, all right, <laughs> all right, giddy up, we'll, we'll do what we can. So it's, uh, I, I realize I didn't answer your question. It was always a very, it was always a, a, cre- a very creative company. I would say that there were, they saw opportunities in this particular region to get even better. So future back thinking, you know, the, this sort of behavior and this set of processes and tools was, was one of the things that we, we brought to the table that they, they hadn't been right. doing. So I hope it's had an impact. I mean, it's certainly seems to have had an impact across some of the measures we were accountable for.
0: Fantastic. So let's talk about digital transformation for a couple of minutes. So what's your definition of digital transformation?
1: Ah, so cut through the consultant jargon, says. Because,
0: uh, <laughs> you know, everybody has a different one. It's just like innovation. It's one of those things that are just.
1: <clears throat> honestly, it's I, you know, I sometimes wonder I had um, I had a uh, uh, Beautiful long hair. Before I was asked to take on the. That's what my
0: wife tells me too. And <laughs>
1: digital transformation practice. Well, because you know, there, there's the two, two, two jargony expressions wrapped into one practice. But um, I, I think you can imagine, uh, given what we talked about earlier, our definition. We said it earlier. It's, it's a set of principles, procedures, and tools, right? Which is consultants speak for. It's a mindset and a skill set for discovering and solving problems mm-hmm. in ways using technology. As I said, it's discovering and solving problems in new ways using technology. And I would say the, the thing in that, at least for me, that I find is uh, maybe a little bit counterintuitive is how digital transformation is different than digitalization. And what I mean by this very specifically is uh, to our our way of thinking, digitalization is merely taking what you've always done in the analog world and digitizing it. So going from live meetings to Teams meetings, going from doing things on a whiteboard to Muto, right? Yeah. Digital transformation is different. Digital transformation is fundamentally reimagining how you get outcomes using the miracles of digital technology yep and w- 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 when you make that shift from digitalization to digital transformation a couple of things happen. first you have to make that shift from planning and waiting to testing and learning that we talked about experiment <laughs> experimentation mindset is required two, you have to be comfortable with uncertainty. Yeah. And you know, it's such a it's such a jargony, you know, pop trendy thing to say that I almost you know, almost don't want to say it, but 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 practically speaking, it means equipping leaders with the tools and the confidence they need to do one simple thing. And that simple thing is this. You have to be able to say, I don't know, and move forward. Yeah. without yeah. putting your team, your reputation, or your, your PL at risk. That's it. That's that's what lay at the core of, of disciplined experimentation or agile, whatever you want to call it, it doesn't matter. It's about equipping people to say, I don't know. Yeah. And move forward.
0: Giving them giving them the the license yeah. to do it.
1: Yeah. It, it, so yeah, when you say a license, mm-hmm. I You're talking about, uh, you know, create a zone of psychological safety or, you know, create an environment where fast and quick failure is tolerated. Yes to all of that. And at bottom, it comes down to a set of behaviors. I mean, it literally, Chris, comes down to helping people recognize what they need to start, stop and do more of coming down to what 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 do I need to start, stop, and do more? This is the thing that's often missed, I find, whenever anyone talks about Agile or or innovation or design thinking, it's okay, I, I kind of get it, I, you know, I can read the book. In fact, mm-hmm. any any consultant who is intellectually honest will say that most of these ideas have been around for a very long time, and it goes back to oh, yeah. the 50s and Alex Osborne. The, the, the problem is in getting them used, and to get them used, it's getting leaders to practice and internalize what I need to start, stop and do more of. Once you can do that, you've taken the mystery and the misery out of all of this. But before you do that, you're leaving leaders adrift to kind of figure out how to do this stuff. And it doesn't feel good most of the time because and you know, we're full circle again, because of the uncertainty associated with it. It's, you know whenever I hear someone say, Younger executives come to me and they say, well, the problem is my boss isn't innovative enough or, or she's risk averse. Mm-hmm. All I say is she's a human being with a brain and 2000 years of uncooperative genetic programming that has just made us all naturally wired to avoid uncertainty and then add 10 years or 15 years of uh, business training or engineering training that is all oriented towards stripping uncertainty out of work, and then getting promoted for doing that. Now you've got a, a recipe for someone who's, who's, it's less about them being uninnovative, to being more about oriented towards avoiding risk at all costs. And therein lies the problem. And of course, uh, from there you can extract the solution as well.
0: Yeah, well, actually, so we've been engineered to be risk averse, basically.
1: Yeah, yeah, I mean, it, I, I think, I don't know who it was you said this. So my apologies to whoever you are out there, uh, whose story I'm taking. I, I'm Sure, I saw it on a conference somewhere. Someone made the point, here's the easiest way to think about it. If you're walking down the street at night on a dimly lit street and there's a rustling in the bushes, your instinct is gonna to be to jump away and be like, ah. Whereas if you're a lion, is walking down the street and there's a rustling in the bushes, her instinct will be to pounce and attack And basically, that's just evolutionary biology at work.
0: So we need to pounce an attack, it sounds like to me.
1: (laughs) Well, that's the thing. I mean, it's it's, you know, perhaps it's an oversimplification. My apologies to uh, to, uh, to cultural anthropologists out there. But yeah, if your instinct is to avoid uncertainty at all costs, then it's no surprise you're gonna be reluctant to engage in, in innovation or anything that has a high degree of uncertainty associated. Yeah. With it.
0: No, you're right. I mean, it's impossible It's impossible to avoid uncertainty, but embracing it is probably the best solution, but not many of us can actually do that. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Well, and it, the, the, the thing is, it's not easy, but it can be done. And yeah. of course, that's the space we find ourselves in and uh, coming full circle to the start of our, our interview when you ask, well, what do you do and what your passions are, there it is. You know, innovation, digital transformation is the moniker, but really what we're talking about is uh, at the level of the brain, really, even uh, people's brains figuring out what creativity is, how does it work, and how can we use it to see uncertainty, not as something to be avoided, but actually as a source of growth, uh, excitement, inspiration, um, and, you know, practically speaking, profitability for our businesses as we uh, we charge forward.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So... Time to think like a futurist. Where are you going to be, where are things going to be in 2031, 10 years out?
1: <laughs> so let me pull out my crystal ball. Uh, <laughs> where are things going to be? Twen- so Well, there's a big difference between 10 years. 20 years and 30 years. 2031. So by 2031, where
0: 2031.
1: are we going to be? I don't know. <laughs> I love it. I <laughs> it's the first, first time. I don't know. I, I ever said that. I don't. <laughs> I don't true. know. But I can tell you. I could tell you how you could how you could figure it out for yourself. Would that be interesting?
0: Okay. What Let's I would
1: hear. recommend, the way I would answer that I mean, the, the, the way we, we we approach the question oftentimes is I would simply take um, signals, right? You know, there, uh, there's another consulting expression. If you ever hear signals, signals of the future, it's basically take examples of the future that you see in the present. Right? Yep, it's examples that's of the part future. of it, yep. I would line them all up on the wall, right on the beautiful wall. I notice, uh, by the way, Chris, we, we share the same taste in uh, uh, wallpaper color, by the way. We can Paint color, yeah. <laughs> yeah, wallpaper <laughs> color. Um, I would take the different signals you see uh, and I would munge them together, which is a fancy way of saying uh, take seemingly unrelated signals, put them next to each other and ask, hmm, what are some of the surprising ways in which these things interact with each other? Uh, and, then, and then you can say interesting things like, well, this is a future in which blank is yep. likely to happen. And for, you know, for me at the moment, honestly, the thought about what the world's gonna look like in 2031 is, is a bit overwhelming as a father in particular. Right. I'm trying to anticipate, you know, what's the world gonna look like and how do I prepare my children for that? Um, and I would say the signals that are most interesting are uh, artificial intelligence in, in general. I would encourage everyone to understand that and take the mystery and the misery out of it. it's yep. it, spoiler alert, it's math. It's just <laughs> it's means When separate. you
0: say that, some people run, run away from it. It's like a four letter word, right? Yeah.
1: Ah, including my son. Yeah, it's but that's it. That's the whole thing. I would look at. I would look at artificial intelligence, and I would look specifically, Chris, um, at uh, do it yourself artificial intelligence. I would look at that as one signal. The next signal I would look at is, of course, uh, distributed teams and uh, you know hybrid work environments. And then the third one I would take together is privacy and cybersecurity.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I would start there. I mean, there's a lot more we could add, but I think if you add those three things together, uh, they're gonna create some future states that I think are gonna be highly, I don't know what they are, uh, but I'm, I have a high degree of confidence that those three things are going to munge together in ways that are gonna change all of our lives. I
0: love it. I love it. Well, thank you so much. This has been great. Uh, is, so if somebody wants to get in touch, you see what's the best way, LinkedIn, webpage.
1: Uh, yeah. You, you could come to, thank you for the question, by the way. So you could come of to course. LinkedIn. That would be, that would be lovely. Uh, or you can go uh, directly to bts.com, you know, bravotangosally.com and you, you can find me there and you can find our whole team there. Uh, actually, we'd awesome. we love to hear from you.
0: Fantastic. Thank you so much. It was great talking with you. Talk to you soon. Take care. Bye.